Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Just a reminder that Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode or Little Big Mood every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash mood. to Big Mood, Little Mood with Danny Lavery. I am Danny Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Hallie Bateman, an illustrator based in Los Angeles. She's the author of three books, including What to Do When I'm Gone and Directions. Hallie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan. I am so excited, but I feel strongly that if you're going to try to coin a term like illustrator, you can't just say you're the author of three books. You need to have some sort of portmanteau for like author, but no drawings of like drawther. Ooh, yeah. I mean, I definitely struggle to find terms for kind of any of my books. I'm like a graphic novel, graphic uh, memoir. (laughs) Like there's... There's a lot of confusion. So, uh, yeah, I, I, did, I did land at Illustrator and I sort of just thought it was funny and accurate. It's fabulous. And I'm glad that you have coined it. Um, and I'm even more glad that I pronounced it roughly accurately. But I also like this. You, you were mentioning earlier that you had not only printed out the questions we're discussing today, which is very impressive that you have access to a printer, uh, but that you'd also gone over it with your dad. And I kind of love this because I know that What to Do When I'm Gone is a project that you took on with your mother. And I really hope that today's episode can just be like, you take the pro-parent position and I take the anti-parent position. Um, and we just Ooh. incorporate that mindset into, and even the questions that don't have anything explicitly to do with parenting, like we will find a way to work it into that last question, I promise you. Yes. Yes, I will be the little like mama's girl. <laughs> I will take this debate class stance. <laughs> I am so excited, not least because um, I, I want to start working on popularizing the concept of the mommy's girl. Mm. Um, what Kimmy Schmidt did for daddy's boys. Wow. I hope you and I can today do for mommy's girls. What do you think is the like defining characteristic of a mommy's girl? I suspect that it might be horses. I suspect that horse girls and mommy's girls have a certain big section in the middle of that Venn diagram, but that's just a suspicion. I would say animals, definitely, maybe not specifically horses. I would say daily contact with your mother and still using the word mommy, ironically, but still using it. (laughs) I love that. I'm going to try to think of at least three or more characteristics. I feel like having like one necklace that you always wear rather than lots and lots of different jewelry, like one small statement necklace mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. is is another characteristic of a mommy's girl. I realize that I'm, is me. I'm just getting closer and closer to describing Samantha from American Girl Dolls, but <laughs> I, I think she's very much like of a type. Yeah. I mean, I also think that to love your mom, there's likely a lineage of good moms, if not good dads in your family. Like, my mom grew up 
in a very rough way, but had an amazing mom who kind of was her the the good force in her life. And so I think that we have like past moms to thank for the <laughs> for the the positive mom relationships going on. I love that. I, I was really remembering that one of the first pieces I ever collaborated on with my now wife, Grace, was about this idea that we had sort of formulated on a plane trip, which was two mom energy drink. And the sort of like, what what types of energy would we imagine a company would promise you that would be like having two great moms? Um, <laughs> I love that. It, it, I think it actually had to do with, there was a guy we knew who was like, why is he so just like relaxing? And yet whenever he like takes over a situation, you're like, yes, I feel secure. Take, take it away, Aaron. And, and Grace was like, I think it's because he's got two moms. Um, and so- it's- Totally. It's like the that predominant like feminine love that you can't you, it just doesn't come from dads. <laughs> Sorry. No. Like it just it just doesn't come from dads. No, and when I smell healthy mom energy on somebody, I'm just like, let me come sit next to you, please. Which is not how I try <laughs> to open those conversations because that's maybe the most horrifying way I can think of to express interest in getting to know someone is you smell like you have a good mom. May I sit near you? <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. I'm very excited to have you here. I'm very excited to talk a little bit more about your own work. Uh, but first, would you please read our first letter? Absolutely. The subject of this letter is tired and sad. My partner and I have been foster parents for several years. We also have biological children and demanding careers. The child we're fostering now is turning 18 in the fall and will soon be moved from our home into transitional youth housing. Our caseworker is asking how soon we can foster another child. I don't know that I can. I went into this believing I could really help children, but it's impossible to ignore how much damage the system does to children and their families of origin. Sometimes getting the child away from their family is urgently necessary, but more often their parents want to do right by their kids and are prevented from doing so because of poverty and the prison system. Some suffer from chronic addictions. I wonder if I could help more children by throwing my energy into working for police abolition and more humane drug policies. But then I wonder if I'm just making excuses. Our state has twice as many kids in need of homes as willing foster parents. Without foster parents, kids are sent to group homes or other institutions that are often way worse. But caring for kids is really hard and exhausting, especially when they're traumatized. 
I just want to enjoy my two bio kids without the stress and pain of social worker home visits, forensic interviews, etc. So I worry my distrust of the system is just burnout. What's the ethical action here? I, I mean, I think to to be as as simple as possible, one of the criteria for figuring out what's the ethical action here is simply what are you capable of right now? And, you know, if if you are not capable of caring for another child right now, if you say, I'm exhausted, I'm wiped out, I don't think I'm up for more of these home visits, you know, I, I think pretty straightforwardly the answer is not now. Um, it's 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 not going to do you or these children much good if you take on the care of another child and then almost immediately, you know, have a breakdown or or just feel like I, I need to completely check out. Absolutely. I mean, this I I read in this letter so much pain that, you know, I think comes from they've looked they they they've looked so deeply and experienced so many things in this really messed up system. And how can they just go on with their life while knowing that, while knowing all the pain that's that's being felt by all these kids in the world and and just fit thinking, you know, what's what's ethical? How could I possibly just enjoy my life for a while while this is happening? Like, I, I, I feel like they're wrestling with just like the maw of agony that's that's in this part of our world, like it is been revealed to them and they don't know how to stop responding to it. Yeah. And I, I also think, you know, literator, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I have some theories about where some of this guilt is coming from, but you say you've been doing this for several years. You say that, you know, in the fall, the kid that is staying with you right now, the kid you're fostering, the kid you're caring for will be moving into group housing. You know, your your case, your caseworker has merely asked, you know, when can you next foster a child? You never signed like a Scientology thousand year commitment. You never said, once I start doing this, I will be fostering kids continuously until I die. So I, I do wonder, you know, it seems pretty straightforward. You are allowed to say no. People are allowed to say no. You're allowed to say, you know, we're we're busy for the next 10 years, but maybe check in with us then. Um, all of those options are totally available to you. You haven't promised anything. And even if you had, you'd be perfectly entitled to change your mind. So I, I do wonder... What part of you feels like this incredibly understandable response, which is how soon can you foster another child? We can't. We're, we're done for now or forever. Um, where you have gotten the idea that this is like going to be the single make or break decision about whether or not the foster care system continues. Because it just feels like you have gone into this uh, with expectations of yourself and your ability to single-handedly change the lives of children, you know, across the board and forever uh, is is just too big. Absolutely. I, I have sort of a, a system that I use to make decisions when I'm kind of stuck like this. And it's pretty simple. It's you play out the best case scenario and the worst case scenario. And if the best case scenario is better than the worst case scenario is worse, then you do it. And I, I think that this person, if you play out the best case scenario and you're like, okay, best case, we get a kid, they're great, but we're still absolutely exhausted and 
we, we, it's been years of this already and we still don't have enough time for our kids. And we're still, even though the kid is great, we're still having to work in this system and, you know, we have our careers and everything. And then the worst case scenario is kind of the same thing. It's like, oh, maybe then the, the kid has a lot more problems, but you're still dealing with all of this stuff. I don't think that the best case scenario here is like something that you even want. And I think that in the letter, they say what they want. I just want to enjoy my bio kids and like throw my energy into working for other things. And I'm just thinking you have all this experience. Maybe you don't have to foster kids. Maybe other first time foster parents could use a perspective, someone who's had experience. So maybe you're, you advise people who are going through it. Maybe you, you take time off for yourself and like give, give what you can, but don't give more than that because you're not doing anyone any favors, including any of these kids who need homes. I don't think that a burnt out sort of, you know, amazingly exhausted, but determined person is like gonna is gonna be the best fit for anyone you need to take care of yourself yeah I, you know I mean I could if I were to really sort of take issue with anything in this letter it would maybe be I just want to enjoy my two bio kids just because you know that was the first time in the letter I think that um oh no sorry biological children was an expression they used in the beginning um I understand that fostering kids on a short or medium-term basis is not the same thing as adoption it's not quite the same thing as saying like my, my real kids and my fake kids, but the children that you, you and your partner had together aren't necessarily just there for enjoyment. So I I guess, I I guess I would just say like, what you want to say is like, I would like to focus on and enjoy everything in my own life without also adding a new foster kid into the mix. Totally, totally reasonable. Um, you know, you say I wanted to help children but it's impossible to ignore how much damage this system does. I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. Um, you may not have been quite as intimately familiar with the details of how the foster care system um, can harm children and families. So it may just be that some of this is like, now I have a really, really clear sense of what that looks like. But it was already a very, very <laughs> flawed and damaged and sometimes damaging system before you signed up to foster kids. Um, and it will continue to be so after you leave. And no matter how great a foster parent you were, that was never going to be something you would change single-handedly. So I would just say, if there's moments when you just feel like, I did want to help kids, but the system is so broken. Yeah, you were never going to fix that system all by yourself. So that is one of those things where you just need to scale back your expectations. But yeah. I mean, the rest of it's just like, yeah, that's true. I don't know what to say. Like, yeah, those things are true. Yeah. And I think that separating like if we all were acting on ethics alone, our lives would look very different. Like if we were all operating on ethics alone, then where does where do our our own interests and our own lives begin and ethics end? I just don't think that's really the question. I, I think this this letter writer may be searching for permission to not live ethically a hundred percent of the time, which is just what we're all faced with. I mean, we drive cars, we eat meat, we, we, I mean, you know, most of us, and there's just not a a way that you can just like build your life purely around ethics. I wouldn't even, I, I would even say that you could go easier on yourself in the letter writer than that, which is to say ethics are not always about maximizing your utility to other people 
100% of the time around the clock. Uh, otherwise, you've just, you know, you've got to be drawn up right before the Egyptian god Matt and put your heart on the scales next to a feather. Um, maybe it's pronounced Mott. I'm not 100% on that. I will look it up and drop a, uh, a pronunciation guide in the liner notes for today's show. But yeah, enjoyment, um, focusing on the children that you already have a legal responsibility to to raise, not just the enjoyment, um, as well as your demanding career and your relationship with your partner. Um, you know, none of those are like uh, shady. Th- you know what I mean? Like none of those are like, boy, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could probably get away with it. Like those are perfectly legitimate goals to have. Um, if you would like to not you know, immediately throw yourself into uh, working around the clock for different drug policies or decriminalization, that is also fine. You are allowed to occasionally like, you know, cast your eye about and see like, is there an opportunity for me to like support a new bill in my area? Is there an organization I can donate some of my time or money to? Um, But you don't, you don't need to immediately replace fostering a child with like, okay, how much time was I spending every week fostering a child? Now I must immediately transfer that to prison abolition. Like, blammo, let's go. Like, Totally. I I think it's important to balance, like, like you said, it's not no one action is just going to like you could give your entire being to this and it would not fix it. I I was uh, I was vegan for four years and ended up uh, becoming vegetarian again. And part of my rationale, like a being vegan was sort of tied in with an eating disorder. So I didn't want to like continue to give that too much power. But I also told myself, I'm like, I put in four years. Great. I I didn't eat dairy products for four years. Like, I think I I did good. Someone else take it from here. I got to go eat some cheese. Yeah. I I, I really want this letter writer not to think of children or taking in children or helping out with the ongoing daily care of children as either like a good deed you choose to do or a good deed you choose not to do. It's a difficult proposition that is one you may decide to take on because you feel ready and prepared to be a parent or a guardian. And if you don't feel prepared, you are not doing something evil. Um, You know, it, it is really sad that your state has so many kids in need of homes. It's really sad that many of them are sent to group homes. It's really sad that many of them are taken away from their families of origin for reasons of like poverty and racist drug policies. Um, All of those things are true. But just again, it's not as if we live in a world where like if you stayed up 24 hours a day and never slept and worked around the clock, you could bridge that gap. That was never going to happen. So you can, I hope, let that go and just say the question is just, are we able to take on another kid right now? Got to go tell the caseworker no. And then when you've had a little time to like rest and reflect, absolutely. If you want to give some more thought to, do I think that the foster care system is something that is like flawed, but possible to participate in, in a way that I feel good about or on reflection, do I want to start dedicating some, not maybe the same amount of time and energy, but some of the, that time and energy towards, um, you know, alternatives or, or trying to help families stay together that might very well be a question worth considering. That sounds like a wonderful question to consider. Um, you don't have to do it tomorrow and you don't have to do it, you know, every waking moment. I, I think that's kind of it. You have a lot of ethical actions available to you here. There's not just one you have to pick out like a diamond in the rough. Like there are many, many ethical actions that you could choose next, I think. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. 
I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. So we get to sort of take a step back and I've been excited uh, for this conversation in in part because I know that you have written uh, advice of your own, both with your mother and uh, just as general life guidance from you yourself. So as another advice giver, I would just love to hear a little bit generally about what your experience has been uh, offering direct advice to people. How's that working for you? Well, it's very different than than necessarily offering advice directly to people. Um, I think that the person I mostly offer advice to is myself. (laughs) Um, The book that I wrote with my mom, What to Do When I'm Gone, was really something that I asked her for when I was in my early 20s. And I was just really afraid of losing her and had sort of entered a point where instead of just imagining, I think when I imagined death when I was younger, I would imagine you get a phone call and someone's dead and it's a bomb dropped on your life. And that would be always like the fear. And this point when I was like 23, I had this sleepless night where I I laid awake and I allowed the scenario to play out farther than just the bomb dropping. And I, I know it's so obvious, but it really like sunk in for the first time that I was going to keep living in this, in this, at least in, in my, in my scenario, like if, if things go according to, you know, tradition, like my, my mom would die and I would continue to live. And that was so scary in a different way. And also felt like something that I was like, Ooh, <laughs> I know how we could work with this, uh, The next morning, I asked my mom to write me a book of instructions that began the moment she dies so that I could have her guidance for the rest of my life. And Was her response to this, by the way, just like, yeah, you got it. I'll write you a book. Was it a little bit like, yeah, where is it coming? Wow, that's incredibly accommodating. Uh, My my mom is is a big part of why I was able to ask her for that. She's very able to talk about, she only wants to talk about real shit and, and to, you know, she, she wrote a, and published a magazine for years that was about aging and dying. And, uh, so she's, she was the perfect person to ask. And, and so it it was really interesting when we crafted this book of advice, it was really started out being for me and, and when we when we got into it, we decided it was still going to be written for me and that that specificity was going to be there, but that we thought it could 
benefit a wider audience, but it really was something that I think is relatable because it's specific. And yeah, it's all questions that I asked my mom and then she responded (laughs) and then I illustrated it. I mean, yes, as you say, it is incredibly relatable if only because if you love someone, either you or they is going to die first at some point. Um, That is a a pretty much a guarantee. So if it doesn't benefit the one, the other can take the copy of the book and say, well, now it's my turn. Exactly. And when we were writing it, I remember in one of our writing sessions, I just, I was just like, mom, like we're geniuses. Like this is gonna happen. Like there's like a a meteor heading toward us. Like this is definitely going to happen. And like, I don't know why people don't do this more. Like have your mom walk you through her own death. It's like, it felt like uh, for some reason, it just struck me that that I'm like, yeah, this this should be a thing that we all do. I love the idea that like you turned 23, you woke up and you said, my mom is mortal. And then you were just like, I'm a genius. Mom, did you know that you too are mortal? Like, I, I also, I totally understand what you're saying, which is like having difficult, necessary, detailed conversations about like, where are all the important papers and how do you want your remains to be disposed of? And like, do you want to talk about your dead body in terms of remains that need to be disposed of? Um, like all of those are incredibly personal and subjective and often people don't discuss them. Um, but I, yeah, I just really love the idea of like, my mom's mortal. I figured it out. I'm a genius. <laughs> I, I like that very much. I will say I I don't actually think I'm a genius. And it did, like, I'm still scared of this happening. Like, it didn't, like, fix the issue. I remember, like, calling my mom after our book came out. And I was like, oh, I'm still sad. <laughs> I'm still, I'm still, I'm still aware. But I think that I'm realizing that my, the the obsessive sort of, grief and and sort of trying to trying to usurp grief I think what I'm really Mm -hmm. experiencing and I've only learned this in like the last year is that I'm in awe and I'm and I project onto it oh this life is so precious and I must hold on to every thread and and I can't let my mom go and I can't and I and I can't and it's like holding on to everything and I think it's just that I'm I, I love her and I'm in awe that I get to have this life where she's in it and seeing seeing what I formerly thought was fear as awe has really like helped me hold those, those feelings in a, in a way that makes me just think that I'm, I'm grateful and I'm fortunate and I'm, and that it's, it's not something that I have to always respond to by making a book about it. Although I'm glad I did. Yeah. That makes so much sense too. I think I I especially relate to this idea of I often want to approach organizational problems by assuming that like that will also clear the way for solving emotional problems in advance, which is to say like, it is wonderful and important to be able to plan ahead of time. Um, you know, how am I going to save up for the cost of somebody else's death, which is a horrible question to have to ask oneself, but often a necessary one. Um, how do I know I'll be able to get all the important documents that they need and um, make sure to carry out their final wishes? And then I'll often think like, and now that means I get to like, I put down a feelings deposit on 40% of the grief I'll experience one day and I've cleared that out of the way. And so when the day comes, I'll only be 60% upset. Um, and it is constantly frustrating to me that you cannot organize your feelings in such a way. You are so speaking my language with this. I feel like I've also bargained with myself that if I feel too much joy, that it will come back in pain and that 
to give yourself over to joy feels really scary because then you think that it's going to be punished somehow. And I think that that's also been part of the equation of, of being like, should I call my mom and just have a nice chat or should I ruminate on how I'm going to lose her one day and which one will have the bigger payoff? And it's like, no, just enjoy the joy. <laughs> Feel that. That's okay. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I relate to that one as well. I also often feel like whatever feeling I am feeling currently is the one that I'm going to feel every day for the rest of my life. And it's also going to be the feeling that kills me. So <laughs> I, I, I basically tend to just treat feelings like baseballs that have been thrown directly at my face. And I feel like, ah, um, and catch it really, really quickly. Um, and it, you know, it is strange because there are things that one can prepare for and there are things that one can't. Um, I realize I have really neglected the anti-parent um, promise that I made at the beginning of the episode, which was going to be, I know, I think I honored that slightly with our last letter writer. Cause I was just like, if you're worried about talking to your parents about an emotional support animal, just fucking don't ignore them. Um, <laughs> their wishes are irrelevant. Um, so I, I've done a little bit, but, um, you know, certainly there are also so many losses that you, you cannot plan for, or, um, that you cannot anticipate. And, and one of the things that's odd about, I am, you know, very uh, estranged from my family and and I'm committed to remaining estranged from them. And one of the things that's, you know, it, it, it's not as if that retroactively erases or neutralizes past relationships. Um, it's just that the up-to-date communication is over. So I, I still have, you know, um, decades-long relationships with these people that I sort of just like kind of carry like, I don't know, you know, like hermit crabs leave their shells behind. Like I carry the shells around, but the hermit crab is gone. Um, but there's still so much to like pick over and process and think about. Um, the one upside, I guess, is that I don't have to worry so much about paperwork. Although you still, even with estrangement, I think you kind of do. Cause if you're like, shoot, I like left my birth certificate at my estranged mother's house. You can't just unestranged to say like, right. I need my, or like you can, I suppose anyone can do anything. Um, I just like the idea of saying like, okay, estrangement paused. Like when you're a kid <laughs> and you're playing like freeze tag and you're just like, wait, hang on. Yeah. I, I recently heard this idea that like, just because you miss someone doesn't mean they need to be back in your life, which I, I felt like was, was a really kind of novel way of realizing like, oh, the yearning and the the love that you feel for someone and that way that you do want to hit unpause and say, I miss you. I love you. I'm sorry. And then click again. Like it, it's like it doesn't it doesn't mean that you have to open it up. It just means that you miss them. Yeah. I, I think one of the very few things that I have retained from C.S. Lewis is uh, who is somebody that gets really drilled into the heads of white evangelical children, at least in the 80s and 90s. I don't know if he still does now, but um, much of what he had to say about life, I cheerfully disagree with, but he had one, uh, thing to say that he, he sort of slotted into a rubric of sin and temptation. And I'm slightly more inclined to put just under a rubric of feelings, obviously, but, um, having to do with if you sort of give into uh, an impulse or a feeling or a temptation in the moment, you only have a sense of how strong that feeling or impulse got right until you just did what you felt like you had to do. You don't actually get the sense of what it looks like when it goes through the full cycle of like peaking and then falling. Um, mm. and, and I, I can relate to that because I sometimes do have a sentimental urge to do something. And I also sometimes have an angry or like 
punitive urge to do something. And both in both instances, I often feel like this is necessary. I've got to do this. It's like feeling you're about to sneeze or throw up. Like it's not even a question of choice anymore. I simply must do this or else I will feel so unbearable in my own body that the world will stop spinning. Um, and usually at that moment, often that's when somebody goes off and does something. And then it's like, well, at least I now have a mess to clean up or a problem to handle. I've given myself a problem. That's nice. But Sometimes if you simply sit and say like the feeling that I am experiencing right now is one of like great sentimentality, great sadness. I really want to do, you know, the following things to make room for that. I'm just going to wait this one out and see if I still see, feel the same way in five minutes. Oftentimes it feels different and the same sometimes is the case for that same kind of anger. Um, and it can be really useful in terms of discerning whether or not is this a feeling I want to do something with or just a feeling that I want to like pat on the head and like acknowledge kindly my husband and I have started instead of saying like that's so great because sometimes in conversation you'll just like say stuff like that and it's not even something that's like great or bad or anything so we just started saying that is it just is <laughs> it's not it's not anything it just like it okay that just is that's a very charming image of you and your husband just constantly affirming existence to one another but I also have to say I, I you know I've heard from a lot of couples uh, during COVID and especially during quarantine, I have not heard from a lot of people who have said something like, so my husband and I realized we were being too generally supportive of one another. We were affirming each other too much uh, and that was our problem. So I kind of love that that was the issue you two noticed. I think it wasn't so much affirming each other too much, but it was more about in a way that didn't even feel factually true, just using words to like fill space. like. It wouldn't always be like, that's great. It would just be like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like that sucks. But someone was just talking about like a very small thing and like something that didn't, it doesn't really warrant like a a big reaction either way. Like I, sometimes you could just tell someone like, yeah, I ate a sandwich for lunch and it was fine. And then they'd be like, okay, that is like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I have sometimes described the, the part of my brain that d does this as the sort of agreeableness engine. And it's always a little bit difficult to pick apart, you know, sometimes I think I, I am generally a cheerful person or I often like to get along with people or I like to affirm things. I often enjoy being positive in conversations. So I don't think this is like solely dysfunctional, but there is a big part of my brain that like when I wake up turns on, it's like, how can I be nice in this conversation? How can I smooth things over? How can I make everything okay? How can I be incredibly likable so that no one has any option but to like me? And sometimes that is like a, a, a beast and it will not turn off. And it is in fact like, oh, I will gladly consume the world before I stop being agreeable. And you're just like, oh, you're, you're terrifying. That's the terrifying part of my brain. Uh, and it can be so difficult to think like, what would it be like if someone told me something kind of banal and fine in conversation. And I didn't say like, wow, that's fantastic. Tell me more. How could I anticipate your needs? And that can, I, I don't know if any of that makes sense or if any of that feels. Oh, uh, it, it makes total sense. And it actually reminds me of the second letter writer who says, whenever I imagine talking about that, I just feel like a burden um, when talking about their, their um, mental health needs with their parents. And I just think if you extrapolate never sharing your real feelings, there's no way that works out 
in your life. I just think that like the way it works out is like you you live a very locked in life where you're martyring yourself for everyone else who is not even asking for you to do that. And that mm-hmm. uh, obviously we don't know how how other people are going to respond. But I think for the most part to to live a life where you're not sort of quietly suffering, it's like share your needs with other people, give them that gift and give yourself that gift. Yeah. And really, I think that that's also present in some of the first letter, which is just this sort of question of um, if I have started doing something that I understand as an act of service, whether or not it actually is, it's just what I think about it. um, Am I allowed to not do it forever and all of the time? And that sort of question of when do I pursue the things that I want and the things that I need simply because they are in my own self-interest and because no one else is going to do that for me. Um, And yeah, as you say, if you don't do that, maybe you will cobble together a kind of life where you wait for everyone else to go to sleep before you acknowledge that you are like hungry or sad or tired or ill. And that's pretty exhausting and pretty alienating. So um, whenever there's an opportunity not to do that, it's good to be able to, to suggest that to someone. I am going to, with your permission, take us into the lightning round. Let's do it. Very exciting. I will read this. I will give you one minute to answer it. And I will give myself one minute to answer it. And that's it. It's binding. It's final. You don't get to take anything back. So no pressure. The subject is sad but hopeful. My husband and I are polyamorous and have connected with other couples more than once. Very charming euphemism for head sex, by the way. Uh, There's one couple in particular that we've seen a few times. I've always really loved the conversations we have as well as the sex. I recently learned from one member of that couple that they are actually mostly interested in me and less so in my husband. This breaks my heart, not only for my husband's sake, but because I would miss them if we ended things. How can we move forward? Do I talk to them by myself first? Do I tell my husband? Do I pretend they ghosted us? One minute. All right. One minute. Uh, don't keep secrets. Don't lie to your husband. He's the one you're married to. And these other people are like your, your sex friends. And that's not the same as the person that you've committed your, your life to. So if that's the way it's going to be, I would say be upfront. Maybe you don't have to tell your husband exactly what's going on, but have, have everyone have a conversation where you maybe go back to just being friends. Or if that doesn't work, then go go meet other people who are into you as, as a unit. Um, and yeah, de- be honest. I don't think lying is ever the solution. You're going to create way more problems. And uh, often by pr- trying to protect your husband from feeling pain or feeling rejection, you're actually just going to hurt him more. I think he could probably handle it. And I think that uh, you have to give him some credit for that. Perfect. That's a minute. That's a minute. Exactly. That was beautiful. All right. I'll put mine, my clock on. Um, Gosh, you know, you don't say if this is kind of one of the first times that this has come up, but I think if you're going to continue to see other couples, especially as a couple, I would really encourage you to not let it break your heart every time someone says, like, we kind of prefer one of you to the other. I think that's actually going to happen a lot. It's rather like dating, I think. You're going to go on first dates with people who think you're fine, but nothing special. You're going to go on dates with people who think you hung the moon. You're going to go with dates on people who just don't like you. Um, If you take all of that incredibly personally or as a horrible accident rather than a natural byproduct of the experience, you're going to have a bad time. So 
I would say consider the context. Did they say that because they were like, by the way, if you ever want to meet up with us, just you, we'd have a great time. In which case, that's kind of fine that they said that. If they just said it to hurt his feelings, that's mean and you should probably avoid them. Um, if they just said it because they didn't know what else to say, you can kind of say like, that's weird, but fine. And, and let it be what it is. Final move is just unless they said it because they want to change something, I don't think it's a question of lying or not lying. Um they simply gave you a compliment, which is that they liked you a lot. And that's totally fine. So if they're like, we like you better, if you ever want to fuck us on your own, we'd have a great time. But in the meantime, we're still happy to keep having foursomes. You don't have a problem. Um, it's okay that they don't like the two of you as a salt and pepper set. And that is time and a few seconds. So a slap on the wrist to me. Um, that's it. That's my lightning round. Ooh, I love that. I love that. Uh, I, I love seeing it as, oh, there's, there's actually not a problem. I think you, I wonder if you get a lot of letters where you're like, there's actually not a problem here. I think sometimes I get letters where I feel like there is an opportunity for you not to have a problem here, which I hope is not okay. the same thing as like, you're stupid to feel this way or you shouldn't feel this way. Um, but I think especially when it comes to something like romantic rejection or even just the possibility that not everything is going to be like perfectly fair. Like when somebody is able to like um, flatten icing on a cake out with one of those fancy little trowels, like, it is okay that in dating, things are not perfectly fair and that sometimes you have a great time with someone who doesn't want to see you again. And it's just one of those things that's like, yeah, that hurts. That's a bummer. What, do you, what, what, what would you like to change about the situation? Do you want to force people to like you the same as your husband? Do you want to force people to go on a second date with you if they didn't have a good time? No. Then th this is one of those things where you just actually have to say like, people like what they like. People respond to what they respond to. Sometimes people gel or or have chemistry in a way that could not be anticipated or predicted. Um, and as long as you are kind and relatively uh, honest with people about what they can expect or ask from you, um, that's the most that you can do, I think. This is cheating, I yeah. feel like. No, it's not cheating. Oh, it's not yeah. cheating. We're talking more generally. <laughs> I was like, I hope I'm not cheating and trying to answer this question at greater length. But just in case, I'll never speak about it again. <laughs> The subject is closed. It is. It is. Um, but if anyone else wants to write in on the subject of foursome etiquette, uh, please do. And I will try not to put it in the lightning round so that we can go into greater detail. All right. Well, my lips are permanently sealed on the subject. Um, Hallie, before I let you go, would you tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now? Yeah. So my latest book, Directions, just came out in the spring. And so... It's been it's been really amazing to see it out in the world. It is a book of advice that's kind of kind of different than this type of advice we're talking about. I would say it's advice that's very gentle and kind of in a category of epiphanies, reminders, aha moments. Like I've I've had friends or readers describe it as something that you used to know, but then forgot. It's very much full of these handwritten um, pieces of advice on scraps of colorful construction paper. And they're really simple things that are, to me, sort of the notes that I've taken and things that I just really want to remember, however basic, however you know however obvious they might seem i think that a, a lot of a lot of really basic life lessons are actually really hard to remember and we have to keep relearning them throughout our entire lives so so this is really a book of 
of sort of that type of advice that I've gathered. I just opened it up to a random page and the direction is admit to yourself that your ass is exquisite. I'm not going to argue with you about that. There's just one. Hallie, thank you so much for spending part of your afternoon with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up, to subscribe, or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you get a minute. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations and interview questions with our guests. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you need some little advice or big advice and you'd like me to read your letter on the show, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description of the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. I think sometimes it can help you make decisions, not necessarily because you realize, oh, I want to quit everything, but sometimes it can help to remind yourself like, okay, as you were saying earlier, Hallie, like what's the worst case scenario? Worst case scenario, if you have to take a leave of absence from college or if you have to drop out or if you flunk out, sometimes it can help to think like, well, what would I do? And the answer might at first be like, I would die in the street and everyone would be staring at me and pointing at me and saying, it's your fault for dying. And then you can kind of get to like, I guess I would consider moving in with this or that person, or I might have to move back in with my parents, or I might look for a job in this or that part of town and start to actually think through like, well, what would I do? And that might not mean like, great, I'll quit college. Fuck it. Like, I do want to stay here. But it can just sometimes help you move something from the category of the impossible to, oh, that would be difficult. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.